Okay, okay, here we go. Part three, part two of a series on trauma and uh, the big finale. Um, definitely built it up a lot to tell you to just get a therapist and do the best you can. But some other information also. Welcome to Consciously, a podcast focused on honest conversations for regular people seeking spiritual growth. Here's our host, Menachem Poznanski. Hey, Consciously family, welcome back. Okay, here's the deal. I'm just coming back from a perm cut and frabrangin with uh, Moshe Weinberger and Rebiesi Zakatinsky. My brain's on fire. And um, I didn't think I was going to record this episode tonight. I'm not going to release it till next week because, um, I don't know. Maybe I will. I don't know. Um, but I've been working on it for weeks, and it's really just the, the final part of this three-part series on trauma and really just trying to like cons- like draw together some of my thoughts about this topic and to be... Uh, you know, more positive about, you know, trying to put out perspectives. You know, the first episode was maybe critical, you could say. Uh, the second was kind of just like laying out some ideas and now we're going to try to be practical, I guess, even though part of what we're going to talk about, a lot of what we're going to talk about tonight is somewhat theoretical and there's so much more to say and I, I don't, you know, it's a, I was thinking a lot about this because like, I, this is going to be long probably. And I could spend a lot of time and like just tease out a lot of ideas. And a lot of it would be really actually concretizing a lot of ideas that are in my in my brain that express themselves often within my practice, but um more most specifically, but also my own spiritual development and also my the privilege I have to be present for other people's spiritual journey. Um but I think this is enough. And then we'll see from there. So let's see how this goes. Uh, This is part two, part three, part two, um, and um, of a series exploring trauma through the lens of Panemius HaTorah, Kabbalah Hasidus, the inner light of Torah, um, which I know nothing about, but this is what I know. So I'm just going to share, as I said last time. Okay, so thanks for joining us first. Uh, do us a favor, subscribe, give us five stars and a review that helps the bots know that we matter, uh, even if they matter, but it helps the people that matter know because it comes up on their feed or something. But most importantly, you can just share this with your friends. Say, hey, I heard this great podcast, if you like it, and um, if you feel like it, it can help them, share it. Also, check us out on lightrevealed.org, um, social media, some WhatsApp, you can check us out there. Um, light revealed uh, broadcast messaging and also our weekly newsletter. That's probably the best thing. Weekly newsletter. It's really cool. It's an email. It comes in. You like it. You don't. It's got a printout from Joey. So it's really cool. So, and there's a link in the uh, episode description for that. Okay. So just to review a little bit where we were talking about, we've talked about how like the foundation of facing uh, tr- the traumatic effects of tragic events that we encounter in life 
from uh, Panemius Hatorah-ish, Chassidus-ish lens, uh, is the acceptance that everything is exactly the way it's meant to be. Right? That's it. It. it we're. It don't. We're almost compelled to start from that premise and go back to the last episode um, to hear maybe how I elaborated on that. That just the kind of basic radical acceptance that I am exactly the way I meant to be, um, meaning I'm perfect. And my goal in facing the darkness that's in my heart and recovering is about becoming more myself and being able to uncover and reveal myself more and more. The real question that lies at the heart of the approach toward healing and working through trauma is how am I going to honor my own journey and story? How am I going to love myself enough to embrace who I am and what my life story is and become the man or woman I am meant to be? Not because of my trauma and because of those who harmed me, because that would make them my higher power, but in many ways despite them. What they did was wrong, but what happened to me is exactly what was meant to be and what my soul needs to fulfill its journey in this reality in order to manifest the light that I am, fulfilling the dream that God had at the moment of the inception of all reality that you, I, we would one day be. The next piece is really the easier part of this exploration, in fact, because in actuality, like in practicality, the Panemius Hattor approach to the treatment of the kind of trauma which results from tragic events is really informed by utilizing expert methodologies and frameworks of material knowledge that's available to us through many mental health professionals. Meaning a lot of this is that when a person encounters something like acute PTSD or even less than intensely acute, when a person encounters things, there's wonderful doctors today that doctors, social workers, therapists, psychotherapists that have methodologies and frameworks that can assist us in walking through the journey of of healing. However, if we're looking at it from the lens of the inner light of Torah, it also entails focusing our spiritual work on constantly reorienting our attitude and perspective to invite God into our process of healing. Meaning it's not enough to go to a therapist in order to allow the healing to occur. And we'll talk about who the therapist is in a moment. But it's not just about the the process that I'm having in therapy, but in order to have a panemius Torah, inner light of Torah experience of healing, I have to also include God in the process, include my relationship with God in the process, which sometimes <laughs> means thinking about how God feels about you, but also sometimes how you feel about him and how you feel about what happened to you. Let's elaborate a little bit because the point is subtle in some ways and can seem and feel like obvious, but one could easily miss the point. So let's, let's go with the, Let's, let's look at it this way. Just as we would go to a surgeon for a physical surgery, Panemia Satora as manifest through Hasidas would encourage us to seek out true experts in their field for treatment, obviously not fly-by-night charlatans and enthusiasts. While we might seek the blessings and direction of a true tzaddik, 
when we encounter physical ailments, right, someone goes through some kind of physical challenge, they might go for a bracha seeking a mystical intervention when, when possible. We might do so as well for emotional or psychological dis- despair. However, at the end of the day, if we need treatment for an acute pathology, we seek out the treatment of the, from those who are truly expert and trained, and ideally those who know they act as agents of God, agents of the Abishter in their practice. As we alluded to above, there is one significant difference, however, between seeking material or medical intervention and seeking emotional-slash-psychological help. That difference has to do with how vital good character is for the interventionist and or clinician. While we would prefer, let's say, for example, our surgeon or doctor or even our plumber or electrician to be a person of spiritual values and ideals, someone who lives ethically. However, additional factors might encourage us to seek help from someone who is not holding there yet. Right? We might want the greatest surgeon in the world to also have tremendous character and faith in God, but sometimes that's not the case, and sometimes we go to the expert of the experts, no matter what. When it comes, however, to healing emotional and psychological traumas, because of the deep connection between our emotional-slash-psychological self and our spiritual self, something we need to elaborate on further, having a clinician who also has faith and proper perspective, as well as ethical and value-based characters, critical. And this is true for two reasons. The first is that seeking help from someone who has corrupted and or faithless perspectives on reality could influence us. It could shake our own faith, thereby cutting us off from the most, at least one of the most, but probably the most vital resource we will need as we walk the journey of healing and self-actualization, our relationship with God. If this reason was was the only reason, though, we might be inclined to seek out an expert, despite their lack of character or faith, making sure at least that they acted ethically within the helping alliance, within our relationship, and also making sure that they didn't impose their own beliefs and values on us, on their clients or patients. However, the second and most important consideration is that a process and journey of healing in a manner that supports our whole self really requires a perspective by the by the practitioner that takes into account the entirety of who we are, all of the parts of self we will discuss later. An understanding that we are composite beings made of spiritual, emotional, and mystical aspects that come together in order to have a human and this worldly experience through the vehicle of a physical body and material self. If the person who is helping us rejects that at hand, then even if they're helping us, they're only speaking to a part of us and not to all of us. And as we'll see, one of the foundation stones, putting aside this kind of accessing expert methodology and framework, one of the foundation stones of really seeking appropriate help in the lens or looking at life through the lens of the inner world of Torah is being able to find help and engage a process of growth and healing that speaks to our whole being, to all of us. So with that in mind, the question that comes is, what is the approach? Within the context of Pneumius HaTorah, as expressed through the light of Hasidus, for a practitioner seeking to utilize scientific and outcome-measured interventions, 
for example, let's say for a therapist and for a person and or for a person who's seeking treatment and healing, what would they think? As we said earlier, the technique can be rooted in expertise that draws from synthetic knowledge, meaning methodologies and frameworks that are learned from, a, I guess, a scientific lens or theoretical or philosophical lens. But the question that we have to ask is what attitude must we have so that we can have a chance at healing our whole self, both the practitioner and the patient? So as we discussed a couple weeks ago in the last episode, what is revealed when looking at ourselves through the lens of the ancient wisdom of the inner light of Torah is that we are in fact a composite creatures. We are a composition of parts. Now breaking down those parts within this frame can seem a little complex, but when framed efficiently, a lot of that confusion, as you'll see, fades. I mean, we're going to try, I'm going to try to at least explain it to the degree that I understand it, that at least has helped me, I think, personally in, in, in the work that I've done. And at first it can seem a little complex, but if you kind of take it in a little bit, it really starts to really make my make much more sense as we go along. Going back to our topic, our goal, right, just to kind of pull pull us back to where we want to be, our goal in unpacking these parts is to en- enable processing and healing trauma, as well as understanding where we are applying and or receiving the different forms of expertise and help being offered. To break this all down, we have to look, we can look, it's useful to look, at two theoretical paradigms. So we're going to get a little bit theoretical, philosophical, spiritual, most of which we are familiar with, but are often misunderstood and always or commonly are conflated one with the other. The first is the idea that we as humans have both material and spiritual parts, not just us, everything in the universe, everything outside of us, everything that makes up our outsides, and everything in our inner universe is reflective of an aspect of us that's material and another aspect of us that's spiritual. Next is a paradigm that looks at the separation between ideas and experience. Because you see, everything in our inner universe is rooted in one of these and often has reflections of both. The ideas that we have, the concepts, the frameworks, and we'll elaborate on that, what we mean further, and the way we experience things. Both of these structures exist within us and reflect our every encounter, and they all correlate to each other, however, they are not all one and the same, meaning our ideas and experience are part of the material spiritual framework of existence. I have a body and I have a soul, which it's in fact much more than that, but that's something we're all familiar with. And within the concept of ideas and experience, part of the way that I think is influenced by the fact that I have a body and part of it's influenced by the way that I have, by, by the fact that I have a soul and part of the way that I experience things, the universe, the world, and I encounter things and the inner reactions that occur from that feelings are an outgrowth of the fact that I have a body and I have a soul. All those things are integrally connected. Let's break this down a little and hopefully it'll start to take shape for you. In order to unpack the frame of material and spiritual, we have to acknowledge that 
there's actually some sublabors, some sublayers. For example, most simply, as we said before, body and soul. We all have both of these. Our body represents the material vehicle through which we, ourselves, encounter the material world around us. Our soul, on the other hand, represents our inner world, our inner self, which perceives, responds, and processes that world. While also conceptualizing more than the world that we process, but an unseen, the unseen underpinnings of the world that we see, touch, hear, and feel. Yet we all know, if we think about it just for a moment, that we are more than just a body, like a, a robot, that contains a soul. Our body has multiple layers, and so does our soul. In fact, there seems to be an even like third unknowable part of us that is a meeting point between the two, a place where differentiating between material and spiritual becomes rather challenging. Let's explain. We all know our hands, for example, are material parts of our body, carrying out functions that serve our interests and desires. We also know our hands are directed by our brains, which operate the complex mechanisms that is our bodily system. Our hands don't move by themselves. Our brain is the one calling the shots. Yet, within our brain, there are also different parts. There is the aspect of our brain that majestically, simply, and quite unconsciously directs the body, but then there are parts of the brain that do other things. There are parts of the brain that process the data that's coming in, and yet there's more. There is a part of the brain that forms reactions and cognitive opinions about the data that's coming in, meaning our eyes see and our brain creates a picture. But then we also have opinions about that picture, and that even influences the picture that emerges, meaning sometimes the picture that we see when we look at the world is not everything that is. It's influenced by pre-established reactions and opinions that our brain has established based on algorithms that it's been collecting since the moment we were born. Even further, <clears throat> another part of our brain, which is quite majestic, is where is the place in our brain where we form ideals hopes, and aspirations, not just hopes and aspirations <clears throat> about what is, but even what might be next, meaning our brains don't even have, don't just have the capacity to talk about what's in front of us, but to even conceptualize what was in the past and ascribe meaning to it in retrospect, but then also to dream into the future a reality that might be. Then even more wondrous is the part of our brain we call the mind. That's where our consciousness lives, who we are and what we believe. So that's amazing. There's a part of our brain where we like have an identity. We have a personality. We have likes and, and all these different parts, the creative parts and the processing parts and the parts that are moving the body are all contained within this mechanism called brain or mind. And above this is an even remarkable, deeply remarkable aspect of our brain where the ideals and principles we have are developed and create guiding laws that direct our actions and which we seek to exemplify in our lives. We create these principles and then we want to share those principles with other, with others that they also can live by those things. And we create principles that we're even willing to die for. Our brain has the capacity to to identify a principle 
that is more important than it. It has the capacity to conceptualize something that's greater than it. Most things can't think outside of themselves, and our brains do this, our minds, our intellect does this all the time. Because we sense that those principles are, are more us than our conscious self and our material body. Meaning it's not just because we think that it's more important to us and therefore we should die, but rather they are more us. Even more mysterious, though, is the part of our brain that seems to operate above our consciousness with a sense of awareness and intuition of a reality beyond our comprehension, a kind of sixth sense that comes when we quiet our minds and listen for an inner wisdom that is beyond the capacity of all the inner calculations that are occurring, a place where a powerful creativity occurs, envisioning new things that have never been seen by us or even anyone. These more elevated parts of our body touch on the part of us that is spiritual, yet they occur, or at least we experience them within us, within our brains, within our minds, and within our consciousness. Then, even further, we have parts of ourselves that we sense are there, but don't really encounter with our organic consciousness. We experience a shade of them at certain moments, but it would be hard to really describe them. Sometimes when we see a sun, sunrise or, we, or when we're with somebody we deeply love, there's, a, there's a, a deep part of us that represents the outer limits of our material self, where things have ceased to be concrete but seem more real than anything we might know. And yet there even seems to be more reality beyond that. Humans throughout all of human history have a sense that we have lived before and that we live in some manner after we leave this world. We have a sense of a part of us that utterly transcends our material self but is very much us. Bringing the point back to center, if I didn't lose it yet, one of the ways we can conceptualize our parts relate to how we understand and encounter ourselves and reality around us in a frame of material and spiritual. This frame contains many layers that seem to blend one into the other, creating a spectrum that flows all the way concrete, all the way from concrete to ethereal, all aspects of a singular self that's part of one. Part of understanding ourselves is understanding that we're more than just a fluid. We're not just a body and a soul. We're not just material and spiritual. We're a spectrum of experience that, flo that flows all the way from the capacity to pick up a, a cup and take a drink or give a small amount of money to someone else who needs it more than we do to actually give them money, which represents value, which allows them to live, all the way to a part of ourselves that on the right star starry night, when we can quiet ourselves down enough, can literally envision spiritual reality beyond our, our, beyond our lifetime, beyond our experience, beyond our reality. Deep, deep, powerful, spiritual, ethereal parts of ourselves. So that's one frame that Hasidus presents to try to understand the different parts of us. The other paradigm we talked about was between ideas and experiences. Let's break that down. Everything we encounter in our world, within the mind and brain, is broken down into something that reflects objective data or subjective experience. 
For example, there is what I perceive something to be, and then there is how I personally encounter it. It would seem easy to dismiss one of these for the other, either to say, who cares what I feel about something, it is what it is, or to say, who cares what it is, I am me, and that is how I feel. However, a mature and balanced perspective of things is one that looks at facts and data, but also takes into account the subjective experience of that data on the subject of hand. Life exists in that world between ideas and experience. Let's elaborate a little bit. We could have a discussion, for example, about whether a particular potential romantic partner and spouse is a good match for you. And if you were being truthful and mature, that discussion would supersede our feelings about who that person should be, or even what we want from a spouse, and instead look for the qualities that person exemplifies, the ideals they live by, and their disposition determining if they are a suitable match for us to choose to be our life partner. We also would have to explore their personal ideals as well as their aspirations and dreams to determine if they align in those areas. As a good marriage can only be built on two parties heading in the, in, in the same direction, and you can't build a good marriage with two parties heading in opposite directions. You don't have to necessarily agree on how you will get there or on how you will behave on the journey, but you need to be heading in the same direction or you'll always just be pulling each other and stuck in the same place. However, if we're being honest about the process, we would also have to take into account some non-objective measures of what makes a good spouse what you are personally looking for in your life and in a relationship. Yet, meaning just because of your personality, what are you looking for? Not just what's good for you, but like, what do you want? Yet even that would not be enough. At the end of the day, you would also have to go on some dates and feel out how you connect with the person, whether there's some kind of undefinable chemistry. If we want to find someone we can really be vulnerable with and leap into a relationship with, we have to really look at all these factors. To dismiss any of those layers would be quite short-sighted and unwise. This is a simple example, but if you think about it, it really applies to nearly every facet of our lives. There is what is in front of me, and then there is how I experience it, and then how I can engage it. All of those define my encounter and relationship with the thing. So we presented two frames. We presented just now the idea that the frame of of ideas and experience and how that undergirds all of our human interactions and how we engage the world, how we choose a career, how we make a make a living, how we choose a partner, how we choose a place to live, how we find the house that we're meant to live in, etc., 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 how we parent our children all the way down right? So ideas and experience. And then we also talked about the idea of material and spiritual, about how we're this confluence of all these different parts that are layers moving on a spectrum from material, from concrete, all the way to spiritual, to that which is ethereal. So let's break down these frameworks a little further, and then hopefully at the end you'll see the point that I'm trying to get to. So to to break it down even deeper, we need to also explore the words that we used earlier. 
ideals, principles, and perspectives. All the ways in which we perceive and encounter, think, and feel are guided by our inner convictions and reactions to the world around us. How we see things, how we hear them, and how we conceptualize them, as we alluded to above, is not only driven by what they are, but also the lens through which we look, listen, and observe. In life we are taught and eventually develop sets of ideals, principles, and perspectives about who we are, what life is, and what it should be, and what people around us should do, and those color how we encounter experience and process the world around us. So meaning it's not just how we experience something emotionally, but it's also how we encounter them through the lens of our perspective and attitude. Some of these ideals, principles, and perspectives are developed based on what feels right to us. Some are developed because of our convictions over and above how we feel about them. And some we accept from others, whether they feel or seem right, because we trust the wisdom of others that we trust. Nonetheless, all of these inform our reactions and observations about our world. So to bring it back to center, we, our consciousness, and even more so ourself, is composed on the one hand of material and spiritual parts that exist on a spectrum that runs from the most physical to the most ethereal, from parts of ourselves we can literally touch to parts we sense and know are there but couldn't really describe or define or even access all the time. But also, that very same consciousness and self is a reflection of our ideas and our experience of reality. How we conceptualize what is and what should be and how we counter, encounter that, both in perception but also in our inner reactions, is part of what makes us who we are. If we are on a journey toward revealing our truest self by processing and healing our inner trauma that results from tragic events, we will have to consider all of these parts. We can't just look at some of them. We can't just look at our feelings. We can't just look at our perspectives. We can't just look at our values. We can't just look at our current values. We have to look at the underlying values and the way that that experiences that. And we have to look at the different parts of ourselves from the most concrete, what our bodies are saying to us, all the way to the most ethereal, what our souls are saying to us. So how can we do that? To break this all down, Pneumia Satora offers two frames that encapsulate what we talked about earlier and begins to open the door to gaining a more practical perspective. The first framework is that of multiple souls. Chassidus, let's explain. Chassidus teaches, based on the teaching of Rav Chaim Vital, the great student of the Arizal, that in fact and in actuality, our self is composed of multiple spiritual energy forces or souls, most specifically a material soul and a divine soul. What this reveals is that the composition of our self that we were trying to describe earlier in all of its layers, both conscious and unconscious, is composed of partnering forces that have multifunction and orientation. Let's elaborate on that a little bit. One soul and its corresponding will and drive, and the will and drive of a soul is the way you get to know it, is oriented to the concrete nature of reality. It seeks and desires to experience, to conquer, and to contain what it sees, hears, and feels around us. It desires to master the environment 
and maximize its material experience, existence, accomplishing its potential and actualizing its strength. That's what it's built to do. Its desire and will is to see the world around it, take it in, ultimately gain mastery at actualizing itself in that external world. That's one soul, the material soul. The other soul, our divine soul, and its corresponding will and drive is oriented, on the other hand, to the underlying and overarching purpose of reality, to the why of existence, and to the creator that's behind it. That's why it's called the divine soul. This part of us, Chassidus explains, wants most of all to fulfill its purpose in creation and be the expression of our creator that we were formed from. This includes expressing itself on the plane of spiritual and mystical, but also harnessing the potential of our material aspects to express the will of our Creator and His purpose in creation. So Chassidus is pointing us to, 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 to try to conceptualize that all of what, in, some, in one lens through which we could look at it, all of these different parts that we encounter, all of that, that spectrum of spiritual parts that go from my hand all the way to the parts of me that I encounter once in a while and everything in between is really manifest in the confluence between these different parts of me. That's not just a body. It's not just the physical robot of a body, but rather a material self that sees the world and wants to engage the world and experience the world. Some of that can become selfish or self-centered or contrary to God's will, but it can also be within the context of God's will, or at least an expression of its desire to fulfill its purpose. Just like the, the, the lion hunts the gazelle, the human wants to form societies, create amazing things, support its family, and uh, build, give, be kind, etc., etc. That's a material soul. And then there's a, 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 a divine soul that accounts for much of the more ethereal parts of a person, the ideas, the concepts, but really most significantly related to the overarching idea of creation, what the, what the, what the creator actually wanted, not just to create a, a society, to form a family and a home, but why should I form a family and home? What's the purpose of that? What's the, what's the function of that society? What we were alluding to earlier, what are the principles of that society? That those things are kind of more related to the divine soul. So so now the question that emerges, okay, so is it just a material soul and a divine soul? I guess, unfortunately, it's a little more complicated than that. So to, to round out the idea, the, comp, the composite of ourselves contains multiple parts, a material soul and a divine soul, but it also contains a physical body which alludes to our actual flesh, muscles, and bones. The exquisite physical space our creator, our creator formed for us, a, represent, a representation and derivative of our, of our physical parents that God gave us to utilize to engage the material layers of reality he prepared. We, that's one part of us is our body. Then we have a material soul with a drive for accomplishment and experience of this world, with all its potential and pleasure. And then another piece that we haven't yet described is a middle space that we have not yet acknowledged, which is a composite of the material and divine souls, which is called the intellectual soul. And really, the intellectual soul is the confluence of where the two souls, the divine soul and the material soul meet, and the energy that collision creates. 
So there's a body, a material soul, an intellectual soul where our material self thinks, but our divine self also thinks, etc., etc. Experiences our divine self also experiences, right? That's called the 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 nefesh hasichlis, the intellectual soul, which is that place where those two things meet. And then finally, we have the divine soul, which is most deeply dedicated to connection with our Creator through expression of His will and purpose. What this frame reveals is that we can't just dumb down who we are into the classic frame, body and soul, or or even animal and spirit. Rather, we're much, much more than that. Our efforts to develop ourselves personally, including processing tragic moments in our life and the trauma, the emotional trauma that results from that, entails growing and developing all of these forces within and bringing them to grow and to bond into a unified and complementary unit that can fulfill their inner will and desire to be themselves. So that's one frame of Pneumia Satora, Chesidus, that we want to think about, this idea of a material soul and a, and a, and a divine soul. The other frame presented by Pneumia Satora, as explained and expressed through Chesidus, for unpacking and better understanding ourselves, relates to one of the earliest passages in the Torah. So let's start there. In Bracious, the Torah tells us that God, in creating and forging humankind, formed them, formed people, in his image. The question that emerges here is, if God doesn't have a body, right? Hashem created us, but Salam Elohim, in the image of God. So the question that emerges is, well, if God doesn't have a body, or really an image, in the material sense, then what is the image that we are created in? Like, we were created in God's image, but what does that mean? God doesn't look like us, he doesn't have a physical body. Hasidus reveals that what the Torah is teaching us is that God chose to create the cosmos and reality within a specific order and sequence. This very order and sequence, called in the inner wisdom of Torah, the spheros, is the underlying code and coding of all reality. Each layer of existence, starting from God's desire to create the world, down through the most spiritual and ethereal layers, and all the way down into the most manifest and material, follows the same order and coding, meaning there's coding that exists at the top and coding that exists in the bottom, and each layer has a code that mirrors the layer above it, but has been altered in some degree that allows things to exist at multiple layer at, at, at multi-layers of, of experience, right? So you have some things that are that manifest in a very ethereal manner and things that manifest in a very uh, material manner. Starting to sound similar to what we were talking about earlier, right? When the Torah says that God created man in his image, it means in the image of this system. And what that means is that human beings are not only part of the system of the code manifesting it in different layers all the way from the most divine through the most ethereal idea-oriented and down into the most material, but that human beings are the most manifest and exact metaphor for the system that lays at the underpinnings of all reality, how God chose to express himself as a creator. Let's restate that a little differently. While most everything around us, material and spiritual, emerges through the spheros, human beings, which also emerge from the system, 
express the system themselves. As the Navi states it, from my flesh I can come to know God, which is explained as teaching us that by studying and observing ourselves, because we are the exact metaphor of the whole, we can actually come to understand in some way God, at least as he chose to manifest himself as a creator. I mean, we can't necessarily understand who God is, but we can understand how he expressed himself when he chose to create the world. While it's well beyond the time of this podcast to break all this down, though we have gone through some of it in some past episodes, Hasidus teaches us that we can break down the system of the spheros, meaning, because if we're composed of the spheros, if we break down the system of the spheros, right, just like if we look at ourselves, we can come to understand God. If we understand the system, we can better know, come to understand ourselves. So therefore, by understanding, breaking down the system of the spheros, we can thereby break down our nature and and the construct of who we are. And you can break down the system of the spheros into a construct of two. And what that means is, is that all of the spheros, and not only all the spheros, but us, all of us, can be broken down into one of two categories, not because that expresses the entirety of it, meaning there's ten spheros. Each of those spheros has within them other components, like, for example, the emotive traits. If you want to go back to the Spheros of Omer series I did, right, there are seven emotive Spheros, seven um, uh, experiential, experience-oriented, reaction-based, feeling-based, midos uh, aspects of the Spheros, and each of those seven contains the other seven, so there's actually 49, right? So there's many layers within the Spheros, but really it can be broken down into two basic categories. And now if the spheros can be broken down into two basic categories, then we also can be broken down into two categories, mochin and midos. Let's let's elaborate what that means. Mochin represents intellectual or data and idea-oriented expressions of self. It represents, so one part of us is what we imagine, intuit, conceptualize, and understand. This obviously is going to relate back to the idea, the ideas part. We're talking about ideas and experience. This also includes and is better stated, driven by and the result and results in the ideals and principles that drive our beliefs, choices, and behavior. So Mochin represents not only how we think and what we the conclusions we come to, but also our principles, our beliefs, and then the choices that result from that. Midos are sometimes referred to as the emotive traits, but more accurately, at least for this discussion, include all of our instinctive reactions to what we encounter. It includes our love and our passion, our awe and and mesmerization, our resilience and our humility, and then what we actually do in the world and how that defines us. The interaction between these two fundamental aspects of ourself lays at the foundation of our personal development. The ideals and perspectives we internalize and construct, and the inner reaction patterns that emerge from our engagement with the world, as well as how we practically manifest those uh, those, uh, reactions outside of ourselves, our midos, represent who we are in our identity 
and the expression of our consciousness. So before where we were talking about the kind of external makeup of who we are in the framework of of uh, of of material self and then the the spectrum from from material self to divine self now we're talking about our identity and the expression of our consciousness as it's broken down into mochin and midos ideas and experience okay so, so we, we have the construct basically there we have mochin and midos and we have material and spiritual right those are the these two things but Let's just one more piece here, which is to realize that those two systems are also integrally connected to one another, which is part of what makes them very confusing, but also very validating because we're so complicated. But now it's kind of starting to make sense. So let's let's elaborate a little bit. Hasidus explains that the construct actually, the construct of ideals and experience actually correlates to the two soul system that we mentioned. I mean, they correlate directly to each other. Each of our souls, our material and divine soul, is composed of both mochin and midos, meaning the material self has mochin and midos, and the divine self has mochin and midos. Intellect and emotions, ideals and reactions are all contained within these two parts, these two fundamental parts, which are really part of one whole, which have different correlating parts, but... It's all there, meaning within that system is all going on, mochen and midos, intellect and emotions, ideals and reactions. The main difference, in fact, between the way that our material self and our divine self experience their spheros has to do with the order of their process. Meaning, if the divine soul and the material soul both have mochen and midos, why don't they always agree? And the reason is because of the order of how they process things. While the material self always starts processing through the midos first and foremost, for example, investing its ideals and convictions in those things that feel right, I mean, our material self tends to run on a gut sense of things and how it reacts, and then to think about what it, its gut is telling it what to do, the divine self begins processing with mochin, for example, investing itself in experiencing the good in those things that our ideals tell us matter. So the divine soul is kind of thinking first, and then based on its thought, that seeing the importance of a thing generates a certain feeling about it, and then engages that thing with a certain amount of gusto because of the emotion that was created by its thought thoughts, whereas the material part of us begins by its gut, what feels right, what feels like it's drawn to, and then it begins to think about those things. So sometimes even though they're kind of composed of the same system they're kind of headed in opposite directions so again when processing our reaction patterns both in emotion and behavior especially those that develop from tragic events in our lives and exploring the perspectives and ideals that are often uh, colored by trauma as well as the manner in which those intersect we have to take into account the manner in which our mochin and our midos intersect, and how the, that relates to the trauma we are seeking to heal. Both the traumas of the divine self, with its will and drive to, to, to purpose and meaning within God's will, and those of the material self, with its will and drive to experience actualization, mastery, 
actualization and mastery of God's world. So when we're engaging a process of healing, we're always need to, in some way, not to overcomplicate it, but to reorient back to saying, well, what does my soul think about this? And what does my body, not just my body, but my material self, right? not just my physical body in terms of my senses, but my the fact that I am a physical being in a physical world, what does that feel about it? And what does my physical self, material self, think about it? And what does my spiritual self feel about it? And to be able to really get in touch with all those different parts, because if I really want to heal, especially something that was so overwhelmingly impactful, and I haven't contemplated all those things, I can't get better, and I definitely can't have a relationship with God. So to review everything we've talked about so far, and then hopefully we'll bring it back together at the end. The path of personal growth and healing related to recovery from trauma, but really all forms of growth, is founded on the following ideas. A, you're exactly who you're supposed to be. And you find yourself exactly where you're meant to be. The journey you're about to go on. B, the journey you're about to go on is, is not one of healing. Healing is a vital step and aspect, but it is not the purpose and the nature of what this is. The journey is one of uncovering and discovering the strengths of your material and divine self, the moichin and the midos that have emerged, and the blockages so that you can discard the blockages and develop the strengths and thereby become more and more yourself and reveal yourself. C. There is deep and meaningful purpose in this very moment of your life. Your journey of healing toward actualization and revelation of your light is vital to the journey of humanity and existence. All of reality has been waiting for your material self and divine self to come together for your identity to form and for you to manifest yourself into reality. The source and sustainer of all reality, God, is intimately aware and engaged in every facet of your journey and cares deeply about you. This is a basic fundament of faith. And in it, God has been anxiously awaiting just this sequence since the creation of the world. All of creation, the world, and reality were designed with this very journey in mind as well to facilitate and bring about you and your story, the story of your material self, meeting the shidduch between your material self, the marriage partnership, the romantic story of your material self and your design self coming together and, and expressing themselves through their ideals and through their experiential parts in order to tell the story of who they're meant to be. Now, the, pre, the, the key prerequisite to walking your journey is constantly reorienting our perspective and attitude back toward God and his will and vision, which is really the intention of our divine self and our material self, just maybe with different attitudes. God should all, must always remain our higher power, the guiding force and source and the guiding principle of our journey. Now, the carrying out of, our, of, of this vision, the vision that is us, our journey, is most powerfully acute when we have in mind that in fulfilling our destiny, 
of facing and walking this journey, we uplift the whole of the Jewish people and the whole world and bring unfathomable nachas, parental pride, to the Creator. Because, because of that, the most meaning because of that, the most meaningful thing is when we have in mind to act in the name of the whole Jewish people and the name of bringing nachas to a creator. Now here's a very important point for us to think about. The perfect version of you is in fact the imperfect, perfect expression of who you grow to become by walking the very journey placed before you. That your divine soul, which is pure, as we say every morning, when we daven, is pure and good and doesn't need to grow at all, but has not yet fulfilled itself by coming into this world. And our material self that sometimes seems so coarse, that unity between those two parts and the way that they express themselves being true to themselves is the perfect version of who you are meant to be. To reach the perfect version of you means embracing, therefore, feeding and fueling all the parts of you to heal and to rectify the relationship between our material self and our divine self so that they might unite in fulfilling the dream of the creator that was you. Now that entails exploring, examining, looking at where my material self seems headed in that direction, right? Because it has to be a good marriage partnership. It has to be a good relationship. It has to be good. We have to create the right chemistry between the different parts of us. Because if our, as we said before, when we were talking about uh, finding a good marriage partner, if we're headed in opposite directions, we're never going to get anywhere. But if we're headed in the same direction, but maybe have different prerogatives about how we're going to get there, then we have to navigate. Oftentimes when a person encounters traumatic events and then tries to heal from those events, they fail to look at those pieces and therefore to realize that what they're really trying to do through when they're trying to manage their feelings and emotions, when they're trying to learn skills to manage their thoughts, when they're trying to uh, create a space of healing and soothing, all of that is about creating a, a, a symbiotic relationship between these between the different parts of them so that they can so that we can be ourselves. So lastly, pulling it all together, all of this means a process and a journey which entails engaging the mochen and midos of our different parts and the part of us that is contained within each of those generally and particularly. That means that any process of healing must mean paying attention to what our body is saying and caring for it in all of its needs. Thinking that I'm not going to think, like I'm not going to pay attention to what my body is saying when I'm trying to heal is absurd. But it also means learning to identify, contain, hold, soothe, and process feelings. And most vitally, it means examining our perspectives on life, on our purpose, on our relationship with others, ourselves, and God, seeking the path by which the tragedies we have encountered and endured can become stepping stones towards becoming who he would have us be. It is only then that we will heal, and only then that our scars might become the texture, contours, and context of this exquisite spiritual journey that God's, God has in mind for our souls and really had in mind for our souls since the beginning of creation itself. Okay, I hope that was useful. <laughs>
Uh, thanks for letting me share. Um, yeah. All right, all the best.